You know, Julie, we don't often talk about current market dynamics on our podcast, but from time to time, I think it's warranted. We just closed the first half of 2022, and I don't know about you, but over my length of time in this industry, it's been one of the craziest time periods with lots of questions about where we've been and where we go from here. It certainly has, John, and I, I'm really excited to hear what Johanna has to say today. She talks a lot about mindset, and I think that these are themes and topics that all of us can take to heart, whether we're financial professionals or ultimately investors, thinking about how do we shift our own mindset and thinking about not only today, but how we navigate tomorrow. Johanna Kirkland is Group Chief Investment Officer at Schroeder's. She oversees investment performance, philosophy, and process for all asset classes, excluding private assets, reinforcing a culture of collaboration across all desks. In addition, Johanna leads the Multi-Asset Investments Division, is a member of the Group Management Committee, and chairs the Global Asset Allocation Committee. She is responsible for investments on behalf of multi-asset clients globally and is the portfolio manager of the Schroeder Diversified Growth Strategy. She joined Schroeder's in 2007 and is based in London. Prior to joining Schroeder's, Johanna specialized in tactical asset allocation strategies. From 2005, she worked at Insight Investment, where she managed an unconstrained global macro absolute return fund. From 1997 to 2005, she worked at Deutsche Asset Management, where she was head of asset allocation in the UK and fund manager of the Deutsche Tactical Asset Allocation Fund. Johanna is a CFA charter holder and has her BA in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford University. Julie, I hope our listeners learn as much from this conversation as you and I did. So without further ado, let's hear from Johanna. Hi, I'm John. And I'm Julie. We're the hosts of the Hartford Fund's human-centric investing podcast. Every other week, we're talking with inspiring thought leaders to hear their best ideas for how you can transform your relationships with your clients. Let's go. Welcome to the Human Centric Investing Podcast, Johanna. Thank you. And thank you very much for having me. Well, Johanna, it's the summer months, July to be specific. And many of us who are parents often endure the annual question from our children on those road trips of, are we there yet? And I think it's really interesting how you've used that parallel to talk about where the economic situation is, maybe not just in the United States, but around the world. And I'll add to that, Johanna, it has been a particularly bumpy road trip. So our question, I guess, to you is, are we there yet? Have we suffered enough? Are we at the bottom? Where do things stand? Well, unfortunately, you know, from our perspective, we think that we, we aren't there yet. Um, this has been so far an old fashioned valuation bear market. Essentially, we have the challenge that rate volatility has picked up and now it's leading to concerns about the outlook for earnings. And ultimately, we need to get valuations to a sufficiently compelling level that we can basically just close our eyes and buy. So I'd say we're not quite there yet. I think we need to see a little bit more value creep into the market. Sometimes, Johanna, I, I know that it's important that we look to the past, although maybe we, we can't stay firmly grounded there. But if we think back or look backwards to, to previous bear markets, are, are there any lessons that come to mind that we've learned from that that might be applicable as we sit here today? Yes, I mean, and, and I think the good news is that we have seen this kind of thing before. And, you know, we do have the tools to cope with these kinds of environments. 
I think the first thing is you must lose sight of your strategic plan. And remember, we're six months into it. A lot of damage has already been done. And so I wouldn't say now's the time to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater, as we say in the UK. Um, so don't, don't forget your strategic plan. I think the other thing to mention is that we're likely to now see an oscillation between concerns about rising rates and concerns about recession. And the challenge is that the portfolio needed for these two different scenarios is very different. So I think being diversified until valuations become more extreme is probably still a good idea. So balance your risks very carefully. And then finally, we also need to look to the future. Typically, once you get into recession, you get some of the best buying opportunities. So don't lose faith. I think that we have a bit more work to do. Things will be a little bit volatile for a bit longer. But ultimately, there will also be some major buying opportunities that come out of this. And typically, those will arise when things feel probably at their bleakest on Main Street. So hopefully that's helpful in terms of thinking about how to navigate the spare market. Johanna, when you mentioned that uh, perhaps a little bit more value needs to creep into the equity markets, it, it sounds like you and your team think there's still a little bit too much of a rosy view on earnings. Would that be, would that be an accurate statement? Is that what you're thinking these days? Yes, it's interesting. I often get call, uh, question, asked whether the market's priced enough recession risk. And actually, when we look across markets, we don't see much evidence of that. The falls we've seen year to date has really been driven by a reassessment of the discount rate, the reality that rates are going up. And so a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush to some extent. So that's a valuation problem. But really, if you look at the shape of the yield curve in the bond market, and also if you look within equities in terms of the earnings expectations, there isn't that much pessimism priced in yet on the economic outlook. So really, that's that's the challenge that on the one hand, there could be more pessimism priced in on the economic outlook. And of course, the Fed isn't done yet. Johanna, I know that you you've shared uh, your your thoughts in the past that that there's obviously been a significant regime change in the markets and we've all felt that. And, you know, what if if for our investors and financial professionals listening, what does that really mean to them as, as they sit here today? in early July, thinking about the remainder of the year as it pertains to their portfolios and, and their, their planning process? Well, over the last decade, you know, we had endless quantitative easing, rates pinned at zero, if not at negative yields in many economies. And essentially that led to an unrelenting search for yield. And the way I've described it, it was like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, the second there was a bit of yield anywhere in the world, we had a wall of money moving there to take advantage of the yield. And this really suppressed rate volatility across the curve and across markets, which in turn then suppressed the volatility of the market. What we're now dealing with is much more, I wouldn't want to say an adversarial situation with the central banks, but clearly they're looking to resolve the problem of inflation, which does mean higher rates, and that's less helpful to market valuations. And so we can't just rely on central banks underpinning valuations anymore. And that's really been the major shift that we're likely to see more rate volatility as they deal with the struggle of inflation. And as a consequence, that rate volatility then leads to uh, recalibration on the valuation side. So, Johanna, I know you said as you think about, uh, as you looked at equity markets, it, it, there's a feeling that maybe equity markets haven't priced in the risk of, of recession. How do you and your team view the risk of recession both in the United States and, and maybe in the European market as well, kind of what do you think the possibility is going forward? Is it a strong possibility or uh, maybe something we just need to be aware of, but 
something that you're not convinced of yet? No, I think it is quite a significant possibility for 2023, simply because we do know that central banks have to raise rates, uh, and ultimately this will pose a challenge to growth. Now, the nature of those recessions is somewhat different, though, if I compare the US and Europe. So in the case of the US, it's a classic rate-induced recession. Of course, in Europe, we have a slightly more complicated situation because we're also facing significant geopolitical risk, uh, you know, in the form of the Ukraine war, which is also leading to concerns about our energy prices. So Europe, in some sense, has a more volatile mix, actually. So maybe that slightly different challenges. But given when I think back, what causes a recession is ultimately when policy has to tighten, irrespective of whether growth is slowing. And this time around, we have two aspects of policy which are tightening, irrespective of whether growth is slowing. One is central bank policy, because they're behind the curve, they need to normalise things. And we're still a way away from actually them being able to pause. And the other aspect is commodity prices and the energy price in Europe, which again is tightening conditions in Europe, and there's not really much we can do about it. Johanna, how likely do you think it is that maybe a mistake or a lack of a correct decision, we'll put it, uh, by the Fed could really uh, cause a recession or have a significant impact on us heading in that direction? Well, I think in the case of the states, I mean, really, the, the problem was that with hindsight, of course, uh, maybe the Fed should have started moving sooner. But of course, they were dealing with a, a human crisis. You know, the pandemic was very extreme. So, you know, central banks don't keep things too loose because they're trying to make a mistake. It's because typically they need to take into account, you know, the reality of what human beings are experiencing at that point in time. So they were slow to tighten liquidity um, because of the risks associated with the pandemic. And so in that sense, the inflation genie was let out of the bottom, bottle. So that's the challenge in the Fed, with the Fed. I don't think the fact that raising rates now is a policy mistake. I think it's the right thing to be doing. In the case of Europe, again, things are more complicated because on the one hand, the ECB has to raise rates. But on the other hand, they also have to keep sovereign debt spreads under control. And so there, there's more risk of some kind of policy mistake because they want to raise rates, but they also need to sort of reassure the market that they're also going to underpin the level of sovereign yields in the periphery. So more complicated outlook there. Thankfully, I think elsewhere in the world, I mean, you know, China is in a better position from a rate perspective. So, you know, they're likely to be easing policy, which is helpful. And actually, many emerging economies ran a less unorthodox monetary policy. They didn't have the luxury of doing so and started to tighten sooner than the West. So, you know, I don't think it's all doom and gloom on the policy front. So, Johanna, earlier in this cycle, uh, I think investors who were diversified, especially in the area of commodities, were somewhat rewarded, at least uh, over the past several months. But I know recently you said that uh, your team is taking a different look at commodities versus where they were earlier in the cycle. Kind of, What is your thinking about the commodity sector these days? So we're very bullish commodities in 2021 on this view that we were in a reflationary environment. And we persisted with that policy this year because we were concerned about inflation. The reason why we took our commodity weight down tactically, and this was a few weeks ago, was just because we were concerned that the market was now shifting from pricing a rate shock to pricing a growth shock. But ultimately, I do th still think that commodities are uh, an interesting diversifier for people's portfolios because we are in a more inflationary regime than what we experienced in the last decade. So strategically, I still think that commodities are an interesting asset class. It's just they'd come a long way. Right now, the market's focused on recession risk. And so that's why we reduced our allocation tactically. 
Since we're talking about asset classes, obviously the sell-off in the bond market caught many investors off guard this year. At, at what point, uh, Johanna, do you think bonds look attractive? Are, are we there yet? Or uh, what, what is your mindset on, on that asset class? Well, we were underweight. Now, you know, we upgraded to neutral. So we prefer we prefer them to equities, which is possibly damning them with faint praise because we're still quite cautious on equities. So I was talking earlier about the need to have a diversified portfolio. And I do think bonds in that context are starting to offer something interesting as we start to price the potential risk of a recession. We need to be careful, though, again, with this level of rate volatility, when we look at credit markets, we need to also recalibrate the level of spread that's appropriate. In a world of negative yields, an ending search for yield, lower credit spreads were appropriate. I think if we're in an environment now of higher volatility, investors will need to see some compensation in the credit spread. So we're getting there. It is getting more interesting in the bond market. Uh, and I think it's a diversifying position. But again, if we head into recession, watch that credit spread, because I think market, you know investors will demand a little bit more compensation. And certainly don't use the ranges of the last decade as your starting point. You need to think a bit bigger picture than that. Johanna, for the financial professionals that are listening to our podcast, uh, many times it's about setting the right expectation of the investors that, that look to them for advice. Uh, Julie and I have often remarked the past few corrections that we've experienced have been kind of sharp and brief, almost so that by the next quarter's end, we were already well on the way to recovery. Would you counsel financial pro professionals to be a bit more cautious given the economic scenario that we're in, that it might last a little while longer. And uh, what would you, how would you advise uh, financial professionals to talk to their clients about what could be an extended period of, of kind of defensiveness, if you will? In some ways, the way I think the way to think about it is just to look at the level of Fed funds over the last 20 years. And if you look at a chart of that, you'll see that uh, the lack of interest rate moves in interest rates has been remarkable in the last decade. And so that very low interest rate um, really underpinned valuations, which meant that when you got a correction, the valuation was improved quite quickly because actually you didn't have a move in the discount rate. It was just a shift in the growth expectation. What we have right now is more of a pincer movement where on the one hand you have rates going up and then on the other hand, you've got growth expectations getting hit. So it's sort of a double-pronged attack on valuation of the market, which takes a little bit longer to resolve itself. So that's why it's a different kind of bear market to what we had in recent years. I think it's much more similar to what we had uh, going into 2000, 2001, at the turn of the century. Um, you know, so, so in that sense, it is a bit more protracted. But again, I don't want people to despair because actually we've already, we've seen six months of it already. And there will be parts of the market that will be able to be more resilient uh, to, to the threat of rising rates and weaker growth. For our crystal ball moment of today's podcast, uh, how long, in your opinion, would you say that our economic downturn could last? Uh, what are we in for here, Johanna? Well, remember what I said earlier, once you get into a recession, actually at that point, typically you can buy the market because it's cheap. So if we're saying that valuation was the problem, Ultimately, it's when valuations got cheap that we'll be able to buy the market. We don't necessarily have to wait for the economy to come out of recession to do that. The market moves ahead of the real economy. And that's a really important point to remember in a bear market. So, you know, if I think about uh, the markets themselves, we've had six months of correction. 
I think that as long as the Fed is in play, which I think we have to assume for the rest of the year, it's going to be hard to really resolve the valuation dynamic of the market. But as we get to the end of 2023, uh, 2022, sorry, we're looking, we'll be looking ahead to the next year. There may be talk of the Fed pausing rates, so the pressure from rate increases might be abating at that point in time. And hopefully some more negativity on the growth outlook will be already priced into markets. So, you know, I think there could be better prospects as we get through this year, even though maybe the growth outlook might be darker for the next year or two. So, again, we have to remember there's a distinction between the economic outlook and the market outlook. The market's corrected this year when growth actually has been feeling okay. And equally, it will recover before we actually get out of any kind of recession or slowdown. So we need to be ready, actually. We need to be looking ahead to the opportunities that will emerge from this. Johanna, if we look specifically at the United States, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the strength of the labor market right now in the United States, given what seems to be a, a supply constraint on labor and that partially driving inflation here in the United States. How, how might the United States withstand a, a mild to moderate recession in light of this labor market that we're experiencing here? Or would we expect to see what we normally see in a recession, which is eventually uh, that that labor market starts to tighten uh, or, or I guess loosen as as you think about companies looking at ways they can cut costs? What's your expectation in terms of the ability of the United States to weather a mild to moderate recession? Well, we would expect the unemployment rate to rise uh, as the Fed acts to slow the economy. And ultimately, that's how they'll bring inflation under control, unfortunately. So we would expect an impact on the labor market as this progresses. The, I guess the, the good news is that ultimately, we also think, though, that the relationship between employment and wages has kind of reasserted itself. So if we think about over the last decade, people were wondering what had happened to the Phillips curve. The Phillips curve looks at the relationship between unemployment and wages. And what was odd a few years ago was that employment was very high, but wage growth wasn't picking up. And although that's great for profit margins, it does pose a challenge. It creates a very unequal situation. And ultimately, you want workers to be sharing in the success of the economy. That actually leads to a more sustainable and successful economy over the long term. And I think that that relationship has reasserted itself through the pandemic. We've seen, in some sense, one of the most profound uh, reshufflings of the labour market that we will have witnessed in our generation. And I think it's meant that the pendulum has swung a little bit more in favour of labour. I know that poses potentially a challenge for profit margins, which we need to price. But it also ultimately also leads, I think, to greater resilience for the economy over the medium term. You know, we do need people to participate in the success of the economy. It's interesting, Johanna, as John and I have conversations with financial professionals day in and day out, so much of of what, what they're trying to do is take all of this information in and then formulate some talking points to reach out, hopefully proactively or potentially reactively to clients who are panicking or are just trying to do something, right? Let, 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 let me tinker with my portfolio or just do something in the hopes that this makes things better. I think that's human nature that when things are going wrong, how can I, how can I you know, fix it, if you will? If you were to think about sort of how today's environment is different than past cycles that we've experienced, 
what would be your handful of talking points that you would want to arm a financial professional with to pick up the phone or, or send an email to clients just to really continue to educate them and explain to them sort of what, what the current state of the union is and how this truly is different from the past? Well, in some senses, I think the first thing to reassure uh, investors is actually to say that in some senses, we have seen this kind of bear market before. I mean, this is very similar to what we had in 2000, 2001. A rate-induced bear market is in some sense the classic bear market. I think we've just been through unprecedented times with COVID. Um, and, you know, obviously now we have the situation in Ukraine. But actually, there's some elements of this bear market that actually we're well positioned to take advantage of. Because, as I said, it is, in some sense, a, a fairly traditional bear market. So we, we have we have the maps to think about it. Now, in terms of thinking about what might be different, I think the key thing is the risk to commodity prices. In recent history, commodity prices, well, probably for the last 25 years, commodities generally have been quite weak when growth weakened, and they haven't been particularly diversifying in the portfolio. This time around, I think they are more diversifying because of the risk of inflation, because of the trend towards decarbonisation, which ironically is somewhat stagflationary. Because of the trend towards deglobalization, I think the geopolitical environment is leading people to thinking about how they secure the resources they need. Um, the energy transition is very resource intensive. So there are a number of factors, not to mention then the geopolitical situation with Russia, that mean that actually compared to previous bear markets, but in terms of our ability to get through this, I think, I think that you know, the industry actually is well positioned for it. I think we can think it through. It's valuation. Johanna, how do you and your team feel about uh, the energy sector these days? It's obviously, uh, you know, when we look at commodities, obviously energy plays a role there. But has has the current demand that we've seen in energy, do you expect that to remain sustained over the longer term? Or is this just kind of a, uh, a snapshot in what has been an extremely volatile time given geopolitical events uh, and so on. Where do you stand on energy these days? Well, again, tactically, we reduced our allocation. We also, besides owning commodities, we were also quite bullish on energy stocks, but we reduced our allocation in the context of this concern about demand destruction at high levels of energy, but that energy prices. But that was a tactical view. I think on a two to three year view, I still think it's an interesting sector because it's facing chronic underinvestment due to the emphasis on the energy transition and divestment from fossil fuels. Um, and at the same time, we're still very reliant on traditional energy. Finally, it's also quite diversifying in a portfolio context. And actually, the energy sector is a value-oriented sector, less exposed to rising rates. Um, and so in that sense, quite diversifying in a portfolio context. Johanna, since this is the human-centric investing podcast, uh, I'd love to ask one of my favorite questions, and it really has to do with your team and thinking about how you are processing all of this information. Obviously, uh, you know all of these data points and factors are moving so rapidly every single day. And so, you know, it's, it's so similar to a financial professional who is rallying their team and trying to continue to stay uh, on top of things as they're changing and communicate that with clients. How does your team take in information and, and process it and come together and share timely insights uh, in terms of a best practice uh, scenario? Again, it, the, with all of the information and it's so rapidly changing, I'd love to know sort of how that, how that works. And also maybe a, an additional question is how have you 
kept morale and and team culture really strong and positive, especially on some of these more trying days? I love this question because I actually think that investment's all about the combination of people and process and really about dealing with behavior. So it actually is fundamental to everything I do all day long is really thinking about how the culture supports our decisions and vice versa. And vice versa. In terms of thinking about the information, um, we are quite lucky here at Schroders in the sense that we have experts across all the different asset classes. And so really, as in my role as CIO, my job is to ensure that if we have a question to ask about the geopolitical environment or the rate environment, that the first thing we do is seek some of the specialist knowledge we have within the organization. Uh, and you know that means that we then have our colleagues that we've built relationships with over the very long term who we know we can trust to help us to make the best decisions. So in that sense, I think it's very helpful. But I think really in terms of maintaining morale, um, I always say the investment processes exist to cope with failure. So the reality is as an active firm manager, even if you are doing a good job, you're typically getting things wrong 40% of the time. That's actually if you're really good. So 40% of the time we're making bad decisions. So to be honest, we have to constantly think about a culture that supports that and allows us to cope with that chronic failure. And the number of ways in which we do that, first of all, we typically have a team-based approach because I think that creates an environment where you have the support of your peers in difficult market environments. Secondly, we have a high level of accountability. It's always very clear who's responsible for every investment decision because it's human nature to always focus on the things that go, go right and to want to ignore the bad mistakes we've made. By having that high level of accountability, people can't shy away from the consequences of their decisions. And having that peer scrutiny to ensure that we constantly recognize our mistakes as quickly as possible. And I think ultimately that leads me on to the final point is that we need to have an environment where it's okay to make mistakes that then supports you in the good times and the bad times. So we have a culture where we say, look, it's fine to make a mistake. Realistically, you'll be making mistakes 40% of the time. But the question is, what do you do about that mistake? Recognize it early, think about the consequences for your client and do something about it. And that's essentially the summary of, of the culture that we have. So Johanna, I'm gonna go back to one of the first statements I asked you about, and I'm gonna put myself in the shoes of the child in the back seat of that car. You've now told me we're not there yet, but my next question is going to be, how will I know when we're getting close? I think I heard you say, uh, keep an eye on equity valuations, but are there any other signs that we may be getting closer to our destination? So you can watch earnings revisions. If earnings revisions really turn negative, you can start to see that earnings concern being reflected. Watch the yield curve in bonds. You know, If that inverts, that tells you again that recession risk is being priced. Watch the inflation statistics. You know, I think we'll get a bit of a technical peaking of inflation just because of year and year effects in commodities. But watch the labor data. You know, if we start to see wage inflation dissipate, that will really allow the Fed to take their foot off, off you know, the need, you know, off the gas in some sense when it comes to rate hikes. So I think those are three things you could be looking at. Earnings revisions, the shape of the yield curve and wage data. I think all of these are important um, things to be monitoring in terms of working out whether we're there yet. I think the final thing is, I mean, torturing the analogy of being in a car with my children also said to say that it'll be great once we get there. I mean, you know, so as I said, the good news is the market is starting to look more attractive. For many years, we were having to buy assets that were ever more expensive. And although it might have felt less risky at the time because the market was going up, actually, it was more risky. Now we're seeing valuations improve. 
and ultimately we are getting to a much better path for markets uh, over the next, I guess, six to 12 months. So would you also caution financial professionals or probably more so their clients from being uh, uh, kind of tempted by these bear market rallies, if you will? Is it still time just to say, let's not make any major jumps yet, but let's just keep an eye on yes. it? Are bear market rallies a big risk? I think bear market rallies are, um, we, we get them, right? I mean, even if we think again about the analogy of 2000 to 2003, when the market ultimately bottomed, we still had within that a very strong rally you know, from September 2001 till to the summer of 2002, when then the Enron scandal hit. So my point is bear market rallies can persist for a number of months. We need to be very alert to that. Uh, the kind of thing that could cause the bear market rallies if we see this technical peaking in inflation and at the same time, if earnings hold up better than expected. Um, so, you know, we need to be alert to that. I think to avoid oversteering, it comes back to this point about being diversified. I don't think it's a time to be heroic. Uh, I think it's a time to be diversified. That will mean that, and equally, don't sell out of the market. Stay invested, but diversified. It means that your regret risk if the market rallies won't be too bad because you'll still be invested. But crucially, if it proves to be, uh, you know, a bear market rally, you won't have oversteered in the opposite direction. For me, it's about diversification right now. Don't be a hero. That makes sense, Johanna. And I know we've we've talked a lot about yesterday and today, and maybe even tomorrow. What if we looked out further? You know, the twelve to eighteen months, as you think about your team and and your broader Schroeder's team's outlook. What what are some of those ideas that you're talking about as you gather around the table for the longer term, the the twelve plus month horizon? Well, I think over that time horizon, I mean, we still like we still like value as a style within equities because it's less vulnerable to rising rates. But really, if we think about 12 to 18 months, we'll be potentially back in an environment where we can buy, you know, more rate sensitive investments. I think one thing I'm very focused on right now is making sure that we are ready, you know, when credit has repriced for the opportunities that will exist, for example, more broadly fixed income beyond government bonds. So that's something I'm thinking about over the next 12 to 18 months. There could be major opportunities to actually invest in decent yields without having to take too much risk. That will make a change. So um, I think that's one of the things that we're, we're certainly focused on. You know, we always have to do our research and resource, uh, uh, make resource allocations based on where we think there might be the best opportunities on a 12 to 18 month view. And I think that's a good example of where, again, with significant repricing, there could be some major opportunities. Emerging market debt in that context could also be very interesting. So, so yield and fixed income, I think, is a major trend to think about on a, on a 12 to 18 month view. Inequities were still value tilted, but ultimately, I think there could be major opportunities in more quality oriented exposures on that 12 to 18 month view. And then I think finally, from a sort of regional standpoint, you know, again, the US has outperformed for many, many years. For many years, we said the US was reassuringly expensive because in a world where growth was scarce and rates were low, the superior earnings stream often by the US was very attractive for international investors. But I think that, you know, international markets have cheapened up significantly and there could be major opportunities on that front on a 12 to 18 month view. Johanna, maybe we could end with a coach the coach question. I'm thinking of financial professionals who obviously uh, change their minds or, or their guidance to clients as they process and take in more information and as more market cycles and, and more days go by in this particular cycle. 
you mentioned that your team has uh, such a positive culture of owning up to mindset changes or even potential uh, mistakes. What guidance would you give a financial professional or what words have you used in the past when you've changed your outlook or your mind? Um, just for those that are sitting here thinking, I have to pick up the phone and, and, and deliver this message to my clients and it isn't incredibly comfortable. Um, any words of wisdom before we wrap up today? Well, it really depends what your starting point is. So I think the first step is to make an honest assessment of your client's exposures. You know, are they overexposed to a particular factor? The reality is over the last decade, having an undiversified portfolio worked very well. Having bonds and then growth stocks, which were actually very correlated, was the, the place to be for the last decade. And maybe we need to recognize the correlations are shifting. So the first step is to work out are you running a diversified portfolio or not? Is it actually overexposed or not? If you find that you, in some sense, have been wrong-footed, I think the key is to stay invested, but maybe try to rebalance the exposures a little bit, because that will minimise your regret risk if the market rallies, but also will contain your losses if this continues. And, you know, I sometimes, one of the coping strategies I use is I sometimes have what I call the sacrificial lamb trade. And what I mean by that is that if you've been caught out by the market, maybe make except there's one small trade you'll do, just put yourself into a more diversified position, except you might have some regret risk around it, but it will allow you to live to fight another day in the sense that if the market continues to be difficult, at least you will have felt you've done something. But equally, if the market rallies, you'll still have plenty of exposure in your portfolio. It's really managing the psychology. So that's one thing that I sometimes do. Um, so that the risk is that you become too entrenched. You end up losing so much money that you lose your rationality, uh, and then you're in a situation where you're like, oh, the market's wrong and I'm right and I'm going to prove the market wrong. I think once you start thinking like that, you know, you've got a big problem. You have to manage your psychology through a bear market. So so that's hope that's helpful. That's how I tend to think about it. Make sure you are diversified. And if you're not, maybe a small sacrificial lamb trade might help you. Johanna, on behalf of Hartford Funds and all of our listeners, we want to thank you for sharing your insight today. It's clear to me that uh, what you're challenging us with is really a mindset change versus where we've been over the past five, six, we could argue even longer number of years, we get into certain habits. But your comments today, I think we'll all take away and do some reflection for the positive, not only for ourselves, but for our clients. So uh, we wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in for more episodes, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.